Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today we have a very exciting one-hour show featuring two very distinguished guests, Karen Knight and Joel Dean. Karen and Joel, welcome. Thank you. Hi, it's good to be here. It's fantastic to have you. Um, Joel, let's start with your new book, Magisterium. Um, tell me, did you begin with a theme and write around it, or did you compile some already written poems or a little of both? It, uh, it, came, out, um, it came out as a, as a complete um, set. To be honest, I was um, I, around 2006, I started writing a series of poems which were um, all, all around sort of a search for truth, I guess, um, spiritual, political, personal truth. And... Um, and they came out of um, a pretty, for me, a serious um, time of, I guess, reflection. With my wife and I, um, been having a lot of trouble with. Um, we lost three kids through stillbirth and uh, miscarriage, and and so it sort of it just had a catalytic effect that that sort of that loss and dealing with it, and um, and uh, it came out in a series of poems and and had a um, and sort of just. Went from there. I wanted to. I wanted to not be it, for the, the poems to not be just about that grief. I was trying to sort of get outside myself a little bit. So the the the, uh, the poetry went from there. Mm. And I really did get that sense of, um, I guess, looking for meaning um, and taking the personal and, and looking for ways of expanding that to the the universal. When I was reading them, but I also felt that I guess a the reverence for truth, which was a driver from the book, and maybe some criticism as well of the duplicity of those in charge. Yeah, that's right. And myself, I included myself in that. Um, you know, I've sort of gotten to, I've gotten to that stage in life where I think circumstances teach us who we are for better and for better and uh, good and ill. And um, and uh, you know, I've, I've um, been having a good hard look at myself, as I say. And um, and yeah, I I, I think that. The uh, the world is not as it should be, and I and I you know and I I, I feel that um, those in you know that, that we're all responsible to greater and lesser degrees um, for for what's uh, for uh, a lot of the uh, you know, frankly horrifying things that are going on around us. Sure, and and I you know I got that sense about um, maybe some animism, the godless power of nature, and then you know that contrasted against those who lead us, whether that's God or whether it's um, those in, you know, in government. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess you could call the collection comes from a bit of a, I mean, it's a stop, a, a stop take, and it's, I think it's a, um, uh, not a midlife poetic crisis, but um, it is a, uh, um, a search for, I think it's a, you know, I, at the end of it, I mean, I wasn't sort of drawing sort of, um, you know, lines about what I wanted to write, but I, I came to the conclusion at the end of what I'd been what I'm what was was searching for was was meaning and faith in something, and um, you know maybe it was only faith and poetry in the end. But um, I was just I was trying to find something to hold on to, and, and I think for me that's quite often what happens with my better poetry. The ones that I think work are ones where I'm I uh, I've got something I'm trying to work out what it is that's that's troubling me, and and a lot of these poems were. Um, yeah, you know, I've been, you know, to be honest, I've been deeply troubled with a lot of things over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And you may not be the only one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. A, a good example of that is the first terrorist. Can, can you tell us a bit about this one? Yeah, I mean, it, it's again, it came from, it came from a memory. Of, you know, I was, I remember, I used to be a, a journalist uh, a long time ago, and I, and I remember being, um, going out and covering. A lot of natural disasters, um, and, uh, and I particularly remember a, a bushfire, the aftermath of a bushfire, and, um, and climbing up over this just uh, unbelievably desolate landscape, climbing up on top of a hill that had just been, you know, burnt to cinders, and um, and that sort of the feeling that it, and that just that sort of had had cooked and settled, and I was thinking about about a lot of the um, you know, just the damage that that gets done, um, and it um, and it came out in this in this poem. I'm not, you know, it's sort of I can't sort of be any more 
um, specific than that, but it just came from some, from a um, an image and a feeling that I'd had sort of inside me for you know, 20 years, really. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I almost thought of the Boxing Day tsunami when I was reading it. Well, that too. Yeah, I was thinking about a lot of other things, but it can't, when I'm when I think about natural disasters, I, I go back to that time when I was standing alone on top of a uh, of a uh, you know what was you know, it, was, it looked like something out of hell. You know this um, this you know this just black black landscape, mm. and that's what I think of. But can we hear it? Sure, sure. Tender in its infancy, effervescent in the heat of its adolescence, building slowly, slowly into an adulthood cruel in its ambition. The fire was all too human. Slowly building, building until its magisterial voice came roaring over the spurs and gullies of the once blue-green hills, calling us to judgment in a language we could not comprehend, driving us to the mouth of a sea that foamed and hissed, taking us by surprise. Taking us by surprise because, in fearing only ourselves, we had forgotten. The first terrorist was nature, and we, the infidels, in its Jerusalem. Mm. That's the path, yeah. It's a sort of I've read that on the weekend to be honest. I'm interested poetry reading in Castle Maine and yeah, I I read that in a series of other poems from Magisterium primarily. Um yeah, I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards and just say it was pretty um yeah, it, I, it seems I'm doing a lot of smiles in the room. It's just it's a collection that's um It's an intense one. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of um I you know, I must have it when I you know, it's only been published a month or so, but I've I have wondered how it's going to be received. Um, yeah, no one's trying beer bottles at me yet, but you know, it's not. Um, it hasn't sort of. Uh, yeah, it's been a um, an an interesting sort of reception. I did when I was writing it. I did a, a reading in one place, and you know, some of the poems had um, very sort of uh, disturbing reactions. You know, at once. So it's it's a bit of a um, yeah, it's, it's one of those books. I'm, I'm sort of, um, yeah, I'm not sure what people are going to think of it, to be honest. But, you know, I think as a poet, that disturbed people being disturbed is is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. We, we always go for the the kill. Yeah. So tell me about the two separate sections. Um, how did you intend them to be different? Uh, good question. I mean, I had them as one complete. And then I, I just felt that there was, I had a feeling about, I, I had a feeling that some of the poems are about um, trying to to live with God, and some are about trying to live without, or you know, or sort of, or you know, it's like you know, sort of with or without truth, or trying to go beyond. There was a, um, there were some poems that just um, were, um, I guess, were, were uh, seemed to fit together in more of a. Um, almost like a grappling with the the uh, the Catholic the Catholic in me, um, and that would be the poems that found a, a place in the, the front of the book. Um, you know, I, was, I come from a very Catholic family. Very, we're all sort of very political, Irish Catholic, Demo, you know, Democratic Labor Party, um, pretty you know more Catholic than the Pope is the saying in a family, and um, and that's where I come from, and it's sort of and that's you know a part of me that. It's almost like a, an ethnicity in some respects, and um, so the the um, the first part of the the book um, is dealing, you know, how it felt to me was it was dealing with a lot of that that sort of you know the the, the, the Catholic in me, and afterwards it was, I guess it's dealing with they're more poems that are um, dealing with the um, the uh, the non-Catholic in me. Mm. And I, I love the fact that you vacated the chair for the second half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that you know I've, I've felt that necessity. I don't. I mean, I, I've come to. Yeah, you know, I don't. Um, you know, and I, I'm increasingly. You know, I feel I'm in no. I'm in no position to tell anybody what to believe or think. And um, and I'm. You know, I'm still trying to work out what it is for me. And I've. Um, 
you know, the world is full of questions and uh, mysteries at this stage for me. Mm. But I, I did feel that there was a kind of oracle quality to the words. I mean, from the the authoritative tone of the title, the little bits of Latin, and, and even throughout the poetry, um, I almost get the sense that it's a sort of sibyl voice or truth tongue talking. Um, sometimes it's small, but sometimes in some poems it's really big. Yeah, it's it's funny because I didn't, they just, these poems just came out, um, a lot of them. They do things that, you know, that um, I wasn't setting out to write them like that. They're just, um, and I, I think that, because um, I've been asked about that, and I, I think that altogether this book is, for better and worse, you know, me right <laughs> right now. And I, and, um, and I guess that um, what I was attempting to do was not shirk um, not shirk things and try to tell things as as I felt them, if not saw them. And so, um, you know, there's there's some contradictions in there, and there's some, but it's but it's um, it's 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 all about things that I feel very strongly, um, even even things that I haven't worked out yet. And so perhaps that's where the the sort of the more um, you know sort of uh, uh, yeah some of the more sort of bigger sort of um, bigger poems come from. Well, one of the really big poems was Rhetorica. Uh, I feel particularly because you've got two really intimate poems preceding it and then you've got this massive hit. From... Can you read that one to us just so we can get a feel for it? Yeah, sure. The rhetoric of the age is not written in words but spelled out in a disarray of deconstructed disembodied bodies the hieroglyphics of slaughter, an ideographic of evisceration without a rosetta, each victim claiming they are the alpha of martyrdom, each avenger vowing they will be the omega of retribution, male-female, mother-son, father-daughter, Muslim-Christian, Arab-Jew, alpha and omega all a collective stream of subconsciousness that runs on and on to the inevitable punctuation mark. Yeah, that's rhetorical. Mm. Tell me about that one. Um, that one came from... I get images um, in my head, and I, I had an image of bodies. Um, and... Um, I, you know, I'm, I can't say where it came from, but it was, you know, I've uh, been greatly disturbed by the um, the war on terror, or whatever you want to call what's been going on, and um, and uh, was thinking about, you know, the shapes bodies make when they're um, once they've been once they're finally at rest after after violence, and. Um, you know, violence and and um, you know, bodies of all shapes and sizes of all uh, of all ages and ethnicities and um, and I thought how they could make and and I had them as a word and I was um, and I was thinking about the and I was thinking about rhetoric and poems as well and about whether um, you know whether it's uh, whether there is a position for you know a really um, overtly political poem, and I'm and I'm I think poems need to work as poems, not be press releases. But um, uh, I just had that image, and I had a feeling that um, if there was a, a time to try to to make a uh, a poetic rhetorical statement, this was it. And so I I did I, I wrote it and. Um, Looked at it for a long time and was trying to work out um, how I felt about it. And in the end, um, I sent it out and it got published. And and so, you know, I thought, well, and I've, you know, I, it's one of those poems that um, it sits um, in the collection and it's, um, in some respects, it's um, it's a headline within the collection and it's it's a it's a, it's a strange poem for me and it's it's, it's probably the most overt um, statement poem that I've got. Mm. 
Now, some of the poems in the second part of the collection, um, that yeah. Vacant, um, they strike me as a, almost a way of creating a new kind of immortality, like an alternative spirituality. Um, I'm thinking of Indelible Attraction, for example. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about that one. Um, Indelible Attraction is um, is a poem that came out of, a um, again, a memory of, of a, a, a bunch of different things. Um, it was... Um, a memory of a party that I was at. It's, um, it's a memory of an image of a picture, um, um, a picture I've seen of um, a, a woman, a, a relative of mine, um, with blood red hair um, from the 60s. And um, and I was I was thinking about um, the impermanence of everything and how. Um, and how uh, I guess yeah, I mean we it's it's also ephemeral, and um, but uh, but but some things do stay with us and are for us alive for as long as we are. Um, and it sort of came out as a an, an odd sort of um, almost. Um, it's a style of writing in the Bible where you sort of um, it's a bunch of. I forget the correct name for it, but you you have um, you juxtapose a bunch of different images, and then you come to a conclusion. And so it was partly informed by that, the style of it. And um, I was just trying to um, I was trying to work my way to that final image about red hair bleeding into the sky, mm. uh, which was the image that I that I had. So again, I have a lot of I get I get images, and that's that's where. I'm, quite often where I'm writing towards or from or away from. That vision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds a bit, yeah, a bit wanky, but yeah. No, I think most poets are beset by them. Um, read, read Indelible Attraction for us. Sure. Beauty is death. A fish taken from black water. A flower cut from earth. The party held on windy rooftops where our prowling and whispers, dancing and jazz, are blown into the stratosphere with those shaky paper light shades and floodlit billboards you can read from 35,000 feet. It is a primary colour, undiminished by time's shades and hues, the exotic of the moment for a moment, as we all are, depending on the time of day, point of view. All you need do is stand still long enough until the world spins around again and finds you there. It is indelible attraction, viewed through a telescope across a milky way of a room, a china wall of a landmark, a scar across a heart, a trail demanding further investigation frame within my mind of a woman I cannot know crossing the road. Her red hair bleeds into the sky. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's that one. It's um, yeah, it's sort of a it's a poem of I've had. It's probably one of it's one of the I've worked on the longest. It's been around for quite a while for me, and I'm pretty happy with it. I guess, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit. Um, it's one of those ones where I'm not exactly sure. Um, yeah, I was. I wasn't exactly sure until what I was doing until it finished. You know. Mm. And yet, I get the sense that 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 sense of beauty, that love, you know, is sort of what lingers when everything else is gone. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, I've I've increasingly come to the conclusion that um, it is the most important thing. That we have, that we have some people and people that we can love and um, things that we can be passionate about, but particularly people. Um, you know, I, you know, I think that that's partly informed by, you know, having kids now. I've got three kids, and um, and that's and it really, um, I think it, it deepens and darkens a lot of the colours. Um, it, it sort of. Um, Makes me um, realise how 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 uh, 
pressure so everything is and how um, I guess how, how fleeting it, it all is and that's beautiful. Mm. Now Karen, I'd like to get into um, postcards from the asylum. Uh, and sure. I, can, I can hear your canary, by the way. Oh, no. <laughs> Just quietly. <laughs> Many rooms away, Magdalena. Just gives you an idea of how loud he is. So, can we have a little background on the book? It looks back 39 years ago on your life. Why now? Oh, well, a number of reasons. Um, it's, I suppose it's that stigma of, um, of being institutionalized that I had to sort of deal with. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a reasonably established writer, so I was concerned about bringing this book out. Um, I didn't want people to think I was mad. <laughs> and uh, also, I felt that I had to protect my family. Um, as you can understand, back in the 60s, and it probably still is, to be institutionalised, it's uh, to be subject amongst a lot of families. And... Really, blatantly, I suppose, I had to wait until my um, parents died before I could bring the uh, collection out. So it's been a cathartic journey for me, and subconsciously I've been writing these poems most of my life, I suppose. Mm. Now, what about the impact on some of the people that you observe, like Valium Val or David the Doctor's son? You know, I know there's always a sense, as writers, of which line we're prepared to cross, because we, we all use ourselves as material. But did you feel the need in, in this one to hold back on some of your observations? No, not at all. I, I feel it's probably the most honest um, collection I've, I've ever written um, because, no, I didn't hold back. And uh, most of the people that I've written about have already passed away. Some of them actually uh, suicided when I was in the institution. Um, I just feel that I I want to speak for them and... Uh, they, they were great people, you know. I, I made a lot of friendships. I, I formed strong bonds when I was there, and uh, I, I want them to be in my book. Mm. In, in effect, you've you've given them these forget-me-nots. You've you've <laughs> you've kind of brought them back to life, haven't you? I have. And the the violent ward um, on the front cover of the book, there's a photograph of a high wall with thistles. That actual wall is a photograph that was. Uh, taken at the Royal Durant Hospital and it's the high wall that uh, kept the violent people in. So Ward C was the most violent ward and it's where you went when you're out of control. Um, I met a couple of people that are actually in that poem uh, that were on the ward with me that uh, they, they really sort of became so aggressive towards the uh, staff that they had to be put into the um, closed ward to really protect themselves and others. Mm. Can, can you read us Forget-Me-Nots from Violent Ward? Yes, I'd love to. Forget-Me-Nots from Violent Ward. David, the doctor's son, flaps at the walls like a nervous cockatiel. Helen misses the confiscated books on electrocution and drowning. Emily warns us she's going to teach her pain a lesson, and she will. While Valiant Val is cocking her leg in the recreation room and Jane's voice is ripping the curtains from their rings, Psycho Paul is almost past the nurse's station in his Groucho Marx disguise. So I try to put a bit of humour into the horror, as you've probably realised. <laughs> For sure. I yeah. almost almost get the sense of that kind of Jewish comedian humor. Yeah. Where you look at something as horrible as the Holocaust, and you, you know, you deal with it by laughing. Absolutely, and you know, there's always positive um, outcomes out of anything that happens in your life. Um, it was really lovely to hear Joel talking about, um, you know, his uh, his children, and um, I must say, Joel, that uh, I wish I had your insight when I was as young as you, um, I'm sure that uh, I would have had many more collections written. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I read recently, I can't remember who it was, that they said, I'm so optimistic I'd go after Moby Dick in a rowboat and take the Tartar sauce with me. And that's sort of how I um, try to live my life now. You know, I'm pushing 60 and... Uh, Really, nothing, nothing else much matters to me uh, apart from love, family, 
and I base this um, experience uh, in the mental institution as an incredible um, experience as far as my writing goes. Uh, it's it's done major things for me. It's won me awards. I, it, it took me to Scotland for a residency, and and I also feel that um, I can speak for uh, people that are less fortunate than myself. So I'm hoping, you know, that this is going to um, have uh, high potential to attract community attention um, and and create a link between writers and mental health groups. Mm. Which which will um, greatly broaden the market for poetry. That's all I'm hoping. One of the things I like about the book is the way it uses poetry to blur the lines between inside and outside. Is it all right. a, a clear theme in the book? I think the, you know inside versus outside. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. When your review you mentioned us and then didn't you? That was a great observation. Sure. Um, I mean, it's easy to write like that when you're there. <laughs> Uh, you, you really want to be out of there, uh, and it's pretty scary because um, you really don't know how long. Well, I didn't know how long I was going to be there. I spent 11 months, and uh, admittedly, some of that time I was able to go home weekends. Uh, but there was always that sense of doom of um, of going back and being locked up at night. I think it was the locking up that that was so frightening for me, and, and the dark. Um, so I, I still have to have a night light on. But also inside and outside isn't only the sense of being inside the mental hospital and outside the hospital, but maybe inside our head and outside. Yes. There's all sorts of um, insides and outsides going on in the in the book. Yes. Well, I'm certainly um, trying to get that across and by bringing in other characters that, that I met and the doctors and the nurses and I refer to the nurses as nightingales throughout the collection um, and the treatments, etc. I, I feel that um, I'm being an observer from the inside, virtually from the outside as well. It's a bit complicated to explain. But, but I think it, comes, it becomes very clear in your poem, Dreaming an Island. Oh, yeah, well, I really like this poem, Magdalena. I'll tell you why. Because... Uh, there was great excitement in uh, the ward that I was in. I was actually put onto a mixed ward when I was first institutionalised, and that was a bit scary because you you're in amongst um, people uh, that didn't really look terribly well. <laughs> um, uh, Down syndrome people that frightened me because they they were very affectionate and they'd come up and touch you and play with your hair and. I was only a young girl, and um, it used to scare the life out of me. Now I realise that you know these people, a lot of them were quite harmless. But after a while, when they realised that I wasn't as mad as they thought, they actually put me onto uh, a group therapy ward uh, where doctors and nurses and patients actually all sat around once a day and aired their views. So I was most fortunate that I was able to have a voice, and it was in the, the late 60s, when um, people were starting to experiment a bit more with uh, mental health. And uh, the great excitement in New Norfolk was, uh, that's where the institution was in New Norfolk. It was the livelihood of the residents there, the Royal Dalt Hospital. It actually employed hundreds of residents and husbands and wives worked there, their children's cousins, uh, so I don't really know what happened to all those people when the hospital closed down in 2001. But there used to be a tourist bureau in the town of New Norfolk and when they uh, finished with their current posters, uh, they used to donate them to this particular ward. And they'd come in big boxes and we'd paste them all up on the walls and it was very exciting because you could actually imagine that you were in these exotic places. So that's how the, pain, the poem came about, mm. Dreaming an Island. Can you read it to us? I'd love to. Faded posters of luxury liners, palm trees and Tahitian girls in yellow sarongs offering white frangipani lays. The local tourist bureau has given us a box full of holidays. Come to Hawaii, they're calling. 
There's lots of peanuts here. I take a tropical flower from a paradise girl and I wear it like a new Dior necklace. This is the upside to Ward 4. Nightingales trust we won't rip up our dreams. Mm. Yeah, so I think that sort of covers it pretty well, what I was discussing. Yes, it does. It gave the it gave the drab walls a lot of colour, as you can imagine. <laughs> and yeah, you yeah. all imagine that we were going on a big cruise ship or an aeroplane, and we were leaving the building and going to these exotic places. So it was it was good therapy for us, really. Mm. Now you've said that the time you've spent at the Royal Derwent made you less scared of and more sympathetic towards mental illness. Absolutely. Do you feel as a society that, you know, we walk around, people walk, tend to walk around with all sorts of fear, fear of the other, you know, and then that yeah. almost motivates us to a lot of the, the negative things we do. Yes, well, you know, I suppose it's just a natural reaction and we'll, we always will be like um, this, that uh, society tends to look down on people that uh, perhaps have a different view of the world. Um, they may not necessarily look different. Um, I suppose the frightening thing about being put into an institution with a whole heap of clinically mentally ill people is some of them, you know, their movements are sudden. You're not quite sure whether they're coming towards you and they may hit you or whether they want to cuddle you. And this still happens now. Like, um, I don't know what's happened to all these people that uh, were in the institution. I, I, I expect that they're in group homes. Or um, I was recently talking to the project manager of the Royal Derwent site because they're trying to turn it into a big tourist attraction, um, but the government has run out of money, so I don't know what's going to happen there. But he said uh, when he takes people on um, tours of the area, he does it a couple of times a year, the most frequently asked question is, where are these people now? And he says, well, they're probably, li probably living next door to you and you don't realise it. And I, I'm a, I travel by bus and I live in the northern suburbs of um, Hobart and uh, you do see a lot of people that you would expect should still be up there uh, and they're on the buses and you can see they're not coping terribly well. And, and that still is a little bit frightening, particularly for people that haven't um, had anything to do with them in the past. Mm. But inside the wards, you know, in some ways, I felt it wasn't that different from outside. Oh, really? Well, well, people love one another. They long for change. They cry yeah. and they struggle. And you know, it, it may be different, but um, not entirely different ways to what we. Yeah, do. yeah, you're right. I mean. It's probably similar in more of a childlike way because um, the clinically mentally ill uh, don't have that um, emotional uh, strength to control uh, how they're feeling at the time. So they tend to be more like children. Um, I've just gone blank at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, I, in the last poem... You mentioned, you know, sort of um, insanity being just a few pages back. <laughs> yeah, and look, I have to say that um, I went there uh, because I, I wasn't, um, I didn't have a mental problem. I went there, uh, well, I was actually put there because I was a, a rebellious teenager. And it was a place where uh, families put their children uh, because they felt that perhaps it was a way of finding a more stable environment uh, for their child and that we would benefit um, from our time there uh, because most of us, and still most of us still do as teenagers, there are struggles just dealing with life. Back then in the 60s, it was a time of great social change. As you can imagine, we were highly influenced by many things, but particularly music, you know, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, um, still am influenced by um, these wonderful people. So when I went up there um, and I established myself amongst the people, I actually really did feel that I wanted to be part of them. And 
after a while, you do start to think that you are mad, uh, but you sort of enjoy it. it it's, it's difficult to explain. It, it's not um, a morbid fascination by any means, and it's not being um, a martyr in any way, but you just feel as though you want to be part of the scene. Mm. We, we are sitting outside sanity. Okay. Sitting outside sanity, reading Truman Capote on a humid day in February and not an ice cream for blocks. The blonde chickens, their belly-pierced jewellery, hips like a sack full of cats. Feathers as a bus clips the wing of a pigeon, cooing in a plastic tree above my head just a few pages ago. And I suppose that really depicts the fragility of how we all are in this world of, of how there is a fine line between uh, madness and sanity. And I like to explain to people when they ask me, why were you there? And I suppose the best way I can explain it is that I have an enhanced reaction to reality. Um, I find it very difficult to um, watch the news. Uh, David Attenborough worries the life out of me. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I'm perhaps a bit different, but in a way I'm glad because I get to write poetry and and I love and I love the, this collection. And also, you know, I, I needed to say too that um, as a form of therapy for myself uh, while I was up there, I used to write postcards to family members, hence the title, Postcards from the Asylum. Um, I used to write postcards that... I never actually posted. <laughs> they were never sent. Um, I didn't feel it was very good taste to send off postcards from such a harsh environment as a mental hospital. But it, it was a cathartic thing even back then. And fortunately, I kept some of the writing. Uh, obviously, you know, it's had severe editing since the age of 19. But um, there is an excerpt in the book called Postcard Therapy with some of the... Uh, excerpts that I wrote when I was up there. Mm. Now, for such a small state, um, Tasmania seems so dynamic artistically. You, you said in a, a previous interview it's because you're so isolated and it allows, um, allows you the space you need to emerge and practice skills, writer. In a way, that almost seems to me like that line encapsulates what happens in postcards, the world being born out of isolation, both literal and metaphysical. Yes. That's that's wonderful. I love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was recently on a panel um, for Living Writers Week down here in Tassie, which is really just finished. And uh, the whole theme was about um, your sense of place here in, in Tassie. And of, of course it is isolated, you know, it's an island, but the, the, the enormous amount of writers and, and well-known writers that we have down here is extraordinary. You know, we have people... Um, that have lived overseas and, and in other states that come here to settle. Uh, people like Robert Desai, um, Richard Flanagan's here, and many poets. I mean, the place is just swarming with poets. You have no idea. Mm. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is quite amazing when you look at it. We're um, very lucky. On the other end of the scale, and, and I want to ask both of you about this, um, Karen, you've spent some time overseas in Edinburgh and, and in Ireland um, doing writers exchange work. Yes. Um, how, how does it feel to sort of work in, in another place? I mean, does it strengthen your se sense of identification with Australia and maybe with Tasmania as well? Or do you feel in some way... Um, you know, you've worked in, you've worked on Whitman's battlefields. You know, you've you've been in other places, both physically and uh, in depth in your writing. Let's talk to yes. me a bit about that. Okay. Well, you know, I have to say that when I um, go overseas, uh, I don't actually do a lot of writing. Um, I think I'm. When I went to Edinburgh, I went with a novelist, Heather Rose, who worked so hard, um, I felt pretty guilty actually because I was doing the typical poet thing and socialising and, and getting out there with my camera and 
looking at all the attractions, but um, I was taking it all in mentally and making notes and I was um, researching Scottish writers and, and trying to get the feel of the place and the history, the dark history. It wasn't until I actually came back to Hobart that I really knuckled down and um, and that's what I've done every time I've been away. It's different when I do my residencies. When I do residencies at Varuna, I really work from dawn till dusk because that's different. But in a place away from your environment um, that's overseas, it is very different because um, here, I suppose, in Tassie, it's it's a great place to come back to and settle. Um, it's... When I'm away from home, I, I become very, very homesick, uh, not only for my family but my surroundings, and that affects my writing. I'm, I'm a bit of a sook, you know. It, it's sort of like that catch-22 of, oh, fantastic, I've got a residency, and then you, you're miserable most of the time because you want to be with your family. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm homesick for my family and my surroundings. Uh, I think places like Mount Wellington, once I get back and I, and I feel comfortable in my surroundings, then, I, I, yeah, I write and work very hard. And I write, you know, I usually churn them out quite fast. But there's also that sense, I guess, as a writer of identifying with a particular place. I mean, your work and, and Joel's work, too, is quite heavily infused by the locale. I mean, Joel, um, how do you feel about the, like, the tricky balance between the global world and the identification with politics and place and nation? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm writing from experience. I lived um, in America for six years, so, and that's where I wrote my first, um, my first novel, Another. I wrote that, and that's a very Australian novel, but I, I wrote that while I was living overseas, and it, um, and, and, for me, it helped being away when I was writing it because um, I just had a. Um, it was purely from um, my memories, which were quite vivid, um, of um, of a lot of places that I knew very well. Um, so that that was um, that helped for the writing of that novel. My and my poems are obviously my first collection of poetry. There's a lot of poems about place, and you know I travelled a lot while I was you know living in America, and and you know sort of my my work as a journalist and um, and in politics has sort of taken me to some odd places and so um, I haven't intentionally but I've just written these poems that have effectively reflected my my, uh, my travels and journey um, and I, I because of I mean I'd, I'd love to have um, um, I've never done a uh, you know a, a, a Verona or anything like that I've never sort of you know been and Sort of had a had a had a, a room with a view to or anything to sort of all that time. So I've, I generally have to grab time to write, and so wherever it is, um, I'll you know I can fall asleep at the drop of the hat anywhere, and I can write just about anywhere at this stage because just I've had to. Um, but I'd love to do it the other way at least once. It'd be be terrific. Um, and the other thing I was just I must say I found um, Karen's. Uh, poems and, and her descriptions fascinating for a number of reasons. The poems are beautiful, but also Karen, um, uh, it sort of really struck a chord with me because my oldest daughter has Down syndrome. So oh, good heavens. So when you're talking wow. about, you know, so I'm very heavily involved in mm. disability, um, mm. the disability movement, and got a great interest in institutionalisation and, and all that. So, um, it's a, it's an amazing, I mean, you know, what what you're talking about just it's an amazing experience, and that um, the sort of the ways that we um, the way we treat people with um, with illness, that, you know, whether it's um, mental illness or disability. I mean, I'm fascinated that they had he was a teenager tossed in with people <laughs> with <laughs> intellectual disabilities. I find that mm. I find that naturally astonishing thing and um yeah it's, it's one of the i mean my daughter's only um seven but i you know it doesn't take much um imagination to um you know and i've i've done it to you know go to places like q cottages we've got here in melbourne and and think of that you know a generation or so ago um she'd have been in there and yeah. um and it's pretty it's pretty bloody horrifying 
may not have ever got out too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Joel, I've I've been reading a bit of your work lately, and and it's interesting because um, I just think you know your poetry is very raw and opti- and yet it's optimistic. And I read recently that your poetry is in primary colours. Have you read that? Um, yeah, that was a review, I think, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. There is a lot of colour in your work, and, and I remember this image of a hot pink raincoat, uh, raincoat depicting an argument yeah, in one yeah. of your poems, and that was really vivid yeah. for me. But um, the, I suppose the thing that I was excited about doing this interview with you was uh, there's a poem that you wrote called In Utero where you said, I build a little house where our hearts once lived. Mm. And in one of my poems called Missing Home, in, in my new collection, I'm saying I'm up at the front gate of the house I used to live in. So I think we should meet sometime. I'd love to. I think we'd get on well. <laughs> <laughs> I should have better be terrific, make it a date whenever, uh, whenever you're here or whenever I get to tell you next. I love yep. that. That would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and I certainly did feel like there were some synergies between the two books. Absolutely, yeah, I felt it too. Almost in, in that um, that duality between the sort of fierce, almost a, a toughness mingling with you know, an utter delicacy and tenderness and having those two things work together in the poetry. I, I found that in both of your work. Yeah, and I also think that perhaps um, we, we're both fairly reader conscious. Yeah. Do you think that, Joel? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that, I mean, the thing for me is that... Um, uh, the, the, when I first started writing poetry, you know, seriously, I was, a, you know, 16, 17, I started going to poetry readings, you know, Perseverance Poems in Melbourne and places like that, and um, and, it, and it was a great education. Um, you know, I mean, there's some awful performance poetry, but it's also pretty yeah. important, I think, to stand up in front of a room full of people and read a poem, and, and especially if they... I like that crowd was then. This is you know a while back. They were pretty uh, full on if you wrote <laughs> with an ordinary poem. And and I must confess that I read a lot of ordinary poems at the time. And um, and it was a really um, yeah. I, I just, I've I, it taught me a, a lot, and I went away and worked hard. And I've I, I think that poems really should. Um, I, I I like reading poems that 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 give me a real job. And, and have and have have rhythm and have music and and that's and and I think that that's partly informed by you know by um, by that time standing in front of people you know making a goose of myself but you know, <laughs> and, you know and it, it's it's really um, you know I think poems are meant to be heard um, you know that that's the other feeling I've got um, so. I remember Joel as a young girl living in Victoria, heavily involved with the poetry scene and being so nervous that I used to have to have a little flask of whiskey um, <laughs> in my pocket. Uh, young girl? <laughs> yeah, times have changed. Um, but I love deceptively simple words and images too, and, and I think that you and I tend to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, definitely, definitely. It's a real... I, I think that it's, um, you know, I've... I'm always looking for, I mean, and particularly with the last collection, I was looking for um, images that were, uh, I was looking for, for, I guess, stark images. I was looking for things that just were pretty elemental. Um, and that's, and, and they're the things that, um, that really keep, that I can't shake. And, mm. um, and it's, and I, and I think that's the other thing is that I, I, I'm uh, I'm not I'm wanting to write poems that I'm, I'm writing poems that I have to get out. I'm not writing poems for the sake of it. Um, you know what I mean? It's sort of yeah. I'm not writing, they're not writing exercises. Um, that's the and um, you know because I I just find it difficult writing writing a poem. It's um, you know it's very cathartic. And um, and reading them as well, it's really because um, it takes you back to things. So um, yeah. Yes, I know what you're saying, um, but I think you know that your work is deliberately and effectively shocking, and that's a great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I really must say that I must I, say that I found yours <laughs> very 
really uh, blows to the head. Um, yeah. In, yeah, getting yeah that shock and that's which is which is what I which is great. Yeah, I like to drive nine-inch nails into people's head, don't you? Yes. Good. <laughs> that, that's what you meant by reader conscious, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> um, Joel, in your interview, um, and, and this um, gets on to that topic of, of the reader, um, in your interview with Michael Gurr, you mentioned yes. that poetry has been lost to the public to a certain degree. Yes. Karen, do you agree with this? Uh, that poetry has been lost, did you to, say? To the public, to a to certain degree. Mm. We don't read as much as we, we ought to, perhaps. Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's always been like that with poetry, Magdalena, and, and people um, seem, seem to put poetry in some sort of category, that it's what they learnt at school and, ooh, let's not go near it. And, and uh, some people still think that poetry has to rhyme for it to be called poetry. So I think, you know, if you can get up there and and be a real, uh, a, a realist, perhaps, with your work and, and write about things that your audience are going to relate to and your readers are going to relate to, uh, then perhaps that may educate them to, to buy more poetry books. The notion that poetry is really doesn't have to be obscure or overly academic. That's right. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that it's... Um, I mean, I've got nothing against, you know, poetry and academia, um, I, I, but I think that, um, you know, it's not... Um, yeah, I think I mean one of the one of, one of the first. I mean, the, two of the parts that I was blown away with as a kid one was Robert Frost, one was Emily Dickinson, and they're both poets who are very different poets, but they're not. There's so much going on in these poems, but they're not sort of referencing everything. You know, they're not like sometimes I'm reading things and they're almost essay, essay-like poems, and I'm not sure about what. Um, I'm not sure if that's. I mean, it's great to be informed by. Other things you're reading and everything else, but um, I don't. I don't really want to sort of. I prefer personally not to wear it. You know, wear it on my sleeve to such a degree in poems, which sometimes you get from overtly academic poems. Yeah, look, I agree, Joel. Like, I'm a big fan of um, the American poet Billy Collins. I'm not sure whether you yeah, guys are familiar with him. Yeah, he's um, he's terrific. Mm. He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, and he's not the trendiest poet in the, in America. He gets sort of poo-pooed by people, but I think he mm. writes some terrific stuff. Well, he he sort of imagines that he's when he's writing that he has someone in the room with him who he's talking to, and he has to mm. make sure that he's not talking too fast or too glibly. Mm. And, and when he describes how um, he's about to write a poem, he says, uh, stepping from the title to the first line is sort of like um, stepping into a canoe. A lot of things can go wrong. So with that incredible observation, yeah. uh, he is very accessible as a writer and and it comes across as so simple and yet there's always that big punchline at the end, have you noticed? Oh, yeah. His work? Yeah, they, they're, real, they're, they're real payoffs. And, um, yeah. you know, I, um, yeah, I was reading one of his the other day and it was... Um, an old poem, but it was about a dog, you know. Oh, <laughs> I know the one. And it's Isn't a great, it beautiful? It's a great poem. It's it a is. great poem. <laughs> and it, it's sort of, it's one I've come back to, I've come back and read it a number of times, um, you know, on and off over the years, and, and I do it a lot of, he, he's one of those poets that I, um, that, that um, he makes every, he, he, he seems to make just about every poem work, you know, there's not a lot does. of dross there. Um, yeah, and he yeah. can write about anything. Yeah, he can. Yeah. So maybe we need more poets like Billy Collins, eh? <laughs> I think that um, yeah, it'd be it'd be read more. I, I think that you know, I think that it's a broad. Obviously, poetry is a broad church, and everyone should be themselves. I think that it would be great to have a Billy Collins type in Australia to drag more people into the tent. Oh, uh, gosh, that, yes. that's and you know because you know, get people in and then say and say, why are you here? Why don't you read this? You know, yeah. that's, and I think that that's that's the great strength of having somebody like him you know I mean you know, you know Louise Murray is a you know obviously a, a great poet but I, I I don't think he's that accessible for a lot of readers um, yeah I agree and, and he's a he's a difficult read um mm. and um 
not all this stuff, but all, you know, but he's a lot of it is, and 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 that. So he's a lot of people probably buy his books and then are like, I don't get it. Um, I yeah. don't suspect. So um, and a lot of them are very lengthy poems, and people sort of get a little bored. Yeah, uh, with, with long poems. That's right. That's right. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a very um, you know it, it'd be. I think mean, it's, it's one of the challenges for Australian poetry. I think there's a we've got a lot of we've got a lot of great poetry going around, and it's um, and I I think that there's a lot of poetry that people would like if they're given the opportunity. Um, personally, one of my major beefs is that I know I'm not sure about in the in the uh, in, in Paddy, but the 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 newspapers here do not review enough poetry, not even oh. blurbs, and it's just and it's a constant, you know, annoyance of mine that they'll write length. You know, they and unless it's say a uh, David Malouf or a, or a Liz Murray, oh, right. um, they don't they don't review, and I think that that's part oh. of the problem as well. Well, we're very lucky here, Joel. We we have um, a Sunday Tasmanian paper that mm-hmm. just about everyone in Tassie reads, and we have a great uh, journalist called Christopher Bantic that yeah. really supports all our local writers, and and That's he right. will he will review, he will put little write ups in his his paper every time. He's been absolutely marvellous. Well, yeah. I, I think that's, that's incredibly important. Mm. So despite its yeah. status as the you know, poetry's got this um, sort of status as the uh, sophisticated unread cousin of prose. I, I was talking to Luke Davies not too long ago, and he you know <laughs> said to me, um, "Totem, which is his book of poetry, you know, it's it's the few reviews it's had have been you know very positive, but it compared to, for example, Candy, and I admit that's been made into a film, which makes mm. a difference. But you know, his his poetry has been almost entirely ignored compared to his his prose." That's very sad. I read Totem when I was uh, staying at Varuna and it absolutely blew me away. Mm. Yeah. It's the most extraordinary journey. And um, isn't it all in sonnets or something? It, well, there's the, the, the first half is um, is that long 500-line um, yeah. poem, Totem, and oh. then there's the 40 sort of love poems. I, I reread that recently, actually. And, yeah. um what I found amazing about that was that um, it impressed, you know, is this sustained sort of ecstatic rant. You know, oh. it's a great, it's sort of, um, and that's, and I just finished reading his novel God of Speed, which is again an ex- a sustained sort of, um, you know, a piece of su- sustained sort of, uh, um, uh, not quite ecstatic, but you know, again, it's a sustained sort of monologue, which is quite um, brilliant and disturbing. And it, you know, he has a um, yeah, that, that the totem poem is is quite quite a uh, piece. It really is, um, stands out in Australian poetry. It's just so original, and you know, I, it would just it's it's got the wow factor as far as I'm concerned. It took my breath away, and it influenced me. You see, you know, I think if if a poet can have that effect on another poet, because yeah. let's face it, everything's been said, everything has been said and written about. That's true. We've just got to find different slants of approaching the subject, and, and he's one of them. Mm. And uh, that was great that you brought him up, Magdalena. I'm going to have to read his book again now. Yeah. Well, I'd almost go so far as to say God of Speed is, is like a verse novel. It's so poetic. But if you were to yeah. call it a verse novel, you'd probably lose half your audience. <laughs> yeah, no, that, the marketing people wouldn't be happy with that. I found that it, 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 was, it had that feel of an extended... An extended poem, and it was um, very readable, very um, very enjoyable. Um, I'll be I, I, I'll be interested to see how it's, how it sells. I hope it's successful. Um, and you know, and it was just um, I thought it was you know, so far as imaginative projection, like projecting yourself into this, you know, into Howard Hughes. It was terrific, really terrific sort of stuff. Um, and I you know, had no interest in how to use, but by the end of it, I did. You know, yeah, yeah. So. yeah, for sure. Look, look, we've got one minute left. So I just want to quickly ask both of you, one at a time, to tell me a bit about what to expect next from you. Joel, you've got the Norseman song? Yes, I've just um, just finished it, and I've got a, a publisher's interested, and um, so I'm going to send that off for the next couple of weeks and uh, and, and start writing another novel. Um, I've got another novel on the can that I want to write called uh, About a Speechwriter. And Karen? Wow. <laughs> uh, 
I'm just so busy promoting this book at the moment, I haven't had much time to think. But um, uh, I'm in the process of completing a uh, collaboration with a Scottish writer called Dillis Rose, and uh, we've got a book coming out called Twinset uh, that's being published by Mucker Press in the UK. Uh, so that's due out later in the year, and that's a 12 months, uh, a virtually a two-year period that we spent collaborating uh, from our different perspectives of our worlds. But I'm rather interested in people that have obsessions like um, bird watchers, you know, people that get around counting birds, I think they call big twitches, <laughs> train spotters. Um, I'd, I'd like to do a whole uh, series of poems about people like that. Mm. It sounds interesting to me. I'd like to read them. <laughs> me too. But thank yeah. you so much, both of you. We're, we're out of thank time. You. We could probably go on quite happily for another hour. So um, it, invite it me to that dinner fast. fast. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks very much, both of you. Lovely to talk to you both. All right. Likewise. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.